Hi, this is Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. This podcast is about scientists, about some of the work they do, about why they do what they do, about the questions and puzzles they pursue. It's about their approach to science, their background, how they were mentored and how they mentor, and much else. Sometimes the podcast is based on a conversation with one scientist, and sometimes it involves several researchers. I'm basically a microscopist who wants to be a neurobiologist. Um, and when I say that, sometimes, you know, people around me, they will say, but you're already a neurobiologist. And that makes me very, very happy. <laughs> That's Dr. Na Ji, a researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. She's a physicist and has a PhD in chemistry. She has a split appointment. She is on the faculty of UC Berkeley's physics department and in molecular cell biology. She is part of a pan-departmental research institute. She's involved in the graduate programs in biophysics and another in neuroscience. She's busy. At Berkeley, she teaches an introductory class in physics. She calls it Physics for Modern Citizens. Now I call it Physics for Modern Citizens. I'm teaching general physics concepts, you know, from energy, atom, all the way to universe, um, to people who never taken physics ever before. It's my first time uh, teaching this course, so so yeah, lots of time have to put in the prepare. But you know, again, I love it. You know, students really respond to it, and I feel like you know I'm making the kind of impact that's beyond what my paper can make. Scientists have impact with their research and the papers they publish about the research. Naji has a sense that her teaching has a wide impact beyond her publications in scientific journals. She was a researcher at Janelia Research Campus in Ashburn, Virginia, where she did not teach. And then she moved to join the faculty at UC Berkeley. That's really nice thing I like about Berkeley is that I feel like I'm making more impact. You know, Janelia was a wonderful place. We have all the resources we need. But uh, the impact you can make is basically through your papers. But, uh, but here, you know, I don't just talk to people in my lab. You know, I, I'm a graduate student mentor for physics students. I'm teaching undergraduate courses. I just feel like I make an more impact about, you know, to communicate science or communicate life, right? What can you do by being, you know, by having a graduate education? Naji works on ways to study the brain, and she wants to make sure the ways to do so are ones that neurobiologists will use, not just physicists. She likes to bridge build between different scientific disciplines. Her approach is shaped by her background. She started out in chemical physics, which is about using physics tools to understand chemical systems. She received her PhD degree in chemistry at UC Berkeley. Looking back, she realizes she has always enjoyed taking something from one field to address questions in another. After her PhD, she thought she would try something different for her postdoctoral fellowship. My advisor always encouraged us to, to do something different. So there, there was never an expectation where, you know, I was doing that for my PhD and I will be doing something similar for my postdoc, for my independent career. She had always been interested in biology, and it was her first choice for college. But I didn't get into the biology department um, because I didn't do well enough in my college entrance exam. And during those years, the biology was an extremely popular major um, in China at that time. So, so, so I always have this biology bug. Like, you know, I want to I study biology. The biology bug made her think broadly about a postdoctoral fellowship in biology after her PhD. 
Her PhD advisor was Yun Ron Shen, now a physicist emeritus at UC Berkeley, and she liked that he encouraged trainees to branch out. Naji mentors her students the same way she encourages them to be brave and try something different after completing their PhD. I, I generally think that when you go to the postdoc, you should do something different because uh, because it's really a chance for you to, to even broaden. Because right now, really, everything is so interdisciplinary for the type of things that we do. You know, I, when you're doing PhD, that's the point where you are really increasing your depth of understanding of a subject. So when you do, when you do postdoc, you really should broaden it out. But, but uh, even going beyond that, what I want my students to appreciate is that you don't have to be a research scientist after you finish your PhD. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have been an academic as your research goal. I do think that uh, all the skills we learn in graduate school is very useful for anything. She is open-minded about her mentees' career choices. They might want to become academics, but they might, for example, join a company or start a business. They might work for the government or in law. When she finished her PhD, as she looked around, she realized how captivating neurobiology is to her. Because, in a way, it's almost like a, it's, it's, it's a puzzle on this more metaphysical, philosophical is that you know I, I, I was doing chemical physics for a long time. I have a very deep understanding of how molecules, how atoms work, how they vibrate, how they rotate, how you know, I, I know them so well and I use my brain, right, to understand all that. But but I know nothing I knew nothing about my brain. I guess I still don't know that much. I know a little bit more now. Um but I just feel like this is really like the ultimate mystery for in terms of uh, who we are. Neuroscience was it. She decided she wanted to do neuroscience and be a neurobiologist. But she is glad that she had studied and trained in other fields. Even if I had known that I'm going to be doing neurobiology, like looking back, um, giving all my knowledge now, I probably still would do the same thing because uh, they just made a great foundation for me in terms of just generally understand the world, but then the more inanimate part of the world but also the training I received uh, um, at uh, my graduate school advisor, it was just awesome. And I think, you know, in terms of research, we are basically everything, uh, you know, all the skills you learn by doing chemical physics research can be applied when you want to do any other type of research. So, so I feel like those, those are all great experiences. In her research, Naji develops methods to help neurobiologists with experimental setups that you do not need a physics PhD to operate. So I, I, I you know, understand because I do neurobiology in my own lab, understand the challenges that neurobiologists are already facing. Just to just to use standard techniques, it's already very hard to do the experiment. You need to try animal, you need to get the surgery done. So what you really want to have is something that is really robust. And then also, it also has to be something that can fundamentally change the type of question you could answer. Because if it's just something that is a little bit better, but, uh, but uh, you know, it, it's just not worth it for them to, to, to really adopt your method. In Nature Methods, she recently published two new ways to help neurobiologists study the brain. And these are approaches she is using in her lab, too. One of the two methods lets scientists image a mouse brain along a narrow path down to a depth of 600 microns in a live mouse. 
I say depth, but it's important to keep in mind this is imaging to a depth of about two hundredths of an inch. But it's deep enough to capture what is happening along the entire length of a neuron, which has a lot of branches and a lot of interactions with other neurons. To use this method, the mouse has been prepped with a small hole in its skull. A brief laser pulse will make sensors in the neuron light up, and those signals can be captured with the help of a microscope. Researchers can watch the entire dendritic tree of a neuron, get a picture of the activity of this entire neuron. This is unlike more traditional approaches that let a researcher only look at part of this tree at one time. So it's really very difficult to say how, if you want to ask the question, how does a single, what is the input, what are the inputs a single neuron receives, and how does this input cause the kind of dendritic synaptic, dendritic, and then eventually somatic level computation. So to answer that kind of question, you really need to be able to look at all the inputs onto a single neuron at the same time. Typically, a lab will label cells in the brain and watch their activity in vivo through the window in the skull of a mouse and by using two-photon microscopy. And then they image a small area inside the brain. She and her team made a system that uses a so-called Bessel beam to work with a microscope called a mesoscope. This mesoscope was developed at Janelia Research Campus in the lab of Carl Svoboda. What's special about the mesoscope is that it has a large field of view. Instead of the more traditional less than one millimeter field of view, he and his team made a microscope, the mesoscope, with a five millimeter field of view that can resolve single neurons. There are other large field-of-view microscopes, but labs can't use those to resolve what is happening in the individual neurons. Five millimeters might not sound like much, but in the brain of a mouse, that's a lot of brain area you can watch. Now you could actually ask the type of question which you couldn't ask before. Basically, a single neuron computation. The system uses a Bessel beam, and if a lab wanted to set it up, it is not hard to do, says Naji. She and her team added a Bessel module to the existing mesoscope. Uh, so, so, so this is actually the thing that I love about Bessel beam, is that, uh, well, is that uh, it's actually fairly easy to set up um, onto our existing system. So this is something you can add to your existing two-photon system. Because if you need a physics PhD to, to maintain the microscope, you know, nobody's going to use it except people in your group. So, so it's actually very, very simple. It's, it's basically an add-on onto the, onto the middle scope. But then once we have the add-on, we were able to, for example, do the, the single cell computation type of example that we just talked about. We just add like a one feet by one feet little, little piece. We, we bolt it onto the middle scope and then we make, we made it to allow it to, to behave, you know, in, to, to generate all this data that we're, we're Labs can set up both this module and the mesoscope. These components are available through a company called Thor Labs for people to set up and use on their own. When they use the system, labs can switch between the Bessel mode and the conventional Gaussian mode. When labs use a conventional two-photon microscope, they are looking at neurons and a single focal plane. You basically scan at different depths to get an idea of what is happening in the three dimensions of a neural circuit. That leads to an image stack, a lot of images. Scanning with the Bessel beam avoids that big stack and gives you information from a volume of the brain and what is going on there. 
you can cover what is called a whole dendritic tree. Naji explains. But the, the, the best of it is, is that uh, the focal volume is still very narrow. It's still like it has really good resolution in x, y direction. So you can see spines and synapses. But in the z direction, instead of being one to two microns long, um, we make it be able to approximate like 100 microns long. So when it's 100 microns long, then that means all the structures that within that 100 micron line can be excited and give you a signal. Now you're basically actually retrieving information from a volume of the depth that is the length of the vessel one. So that's 100. So instead of taking 600, I mean 300 images for that 600 micron amount on cell, we only take six images. So we just scan the vessel focus at 100 micron steps, then we can cover this whole um, Using the system, the team was also able to look at thousands of GABAergic neurons in a mouse that was awake and resting. GABA stands for gamma aminobutyric acid. GABAergic neurons are a kind of neuron. They are inhibitory neurons. In mammals, and humans are mammals, as are mice, the GABAergic system is involved in muscle activity, but also things such as anxiety and stress response. Inhibitory neurons play different roles depending on where they are in the brain. The inhibitory neurons are not a uniform population. The, the, the neurons at different layers, they will have different roles. At different depths, can have different roles, different, uh, different functions. Using a mesoscope alone without the Bessel beam might take the gaze of a researcher to around 160 microns. But the Bessel beam got the team to be able to see to a depth of 600 microns, and they got a wide field of view. So they could look at what was happening in several brain regions. So the middle scope is based on a 2 photon microscope with a very large field of view that you can image a very large area. So, so now with that, so why, 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 do, why do people want to image in multiple brain regions at the same time, right? So traditionally, you know, standard 2 photon system that you, you, you buy, uh, now mesoscope, you usually image, you know, one to two millimeter diameter area, which is usually just a single cortical brain region of a mouse. But if you really look at uh, behavior, so people, you know, we can do lower resolution imaging experiment where you look at the whole dorsal surface, the whole top surface of the cortex of a mouse that is engaged in a behavior. What you will see is that all brain regions become very active. And you see activities goes back and forth, and like the waves, it's just mesmerizing. So, so it's it's really like it's great to study a simple region and you know to try to understand that that kind of research certainly is very very valuable. But ultimately, when you go more and more towards a system level understanding or cognitive level understanding of the brain, you would want to be able to image in multiple brain areas at the same time, because we already know that all those areas are engaged when we try to do any kind of behavior task. And even like, in this particular example for the four brain region thing, the mouse was not engaging in anything. It was just staying in the dark, just kind of, you know, daydreaming. The mouse was daydreaming. And yeah, the scientists can't know what it was daydreaming about, but it was sitting in the dark and the scientists got a glimpse of its brain activity. Even when it is not scrambling around or tussling with others, multiple brain regions are active. The scientists were able to image 9,000 neurons across four areas of the brain, which seems like a neat accomplishment. 
Najee is happy with the work, but she sees plenty of one-uppance going around in neuroscience. This idea of I imaged more neurons than you did. Like, yeah, you know, we did 9,000 neurons, right. But, but, uh, but uh, it's like, does that necessarily better than 8,000 neurons? <laughs> or is it worse than 20,000 neurons? It, 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 it's, uh, it, it, it's not something that, you know, bigger is not necessarily better. When she was looking around for a postdoctoral fellowship, her mentor told her to go talk to a neurobiologist. One of the things one neurobiologist told her was that becoming a good neurobiologist was contingent on the questions you ask. In physics, the questions scientists ask are about quantity, she says. You know, it's all about value, quantity. But, uh, but in biology, it's really about the questions you ask, which is really also what really intrigues me about biology, because I feel like there's actually a lot more thinking and intellectual effort going into asking a neurobiology question than for technology, you can be simple-minded, right? Larger feel of you, faster speed, and that's <laughs> What she found interesting is that they could observe 9,000 neurons across four areas of the brain. The information is really keep propagating within the brain. So this is why the middle scale is really important. And, and to, to be able to look at that whole propagation. With the mesoscope, they watched calcium concentration change inside neurons. That's one way of watching neuronal activity. What this tracks is that when a neuron fires, there is an electrical signal that propagates down the length of the neuron. Calcium flows into the neuron. The calcium signal can last for one or two seconds, but the actual electrical signal is much faster. It's a little like thunder and lightning. With calcium imaging, you're catching the thunder, not the lightning. And then, neurons do a lot more than fire or not fire. Signals arrive to a neuron that lead to what is called sub-threshold activity. It's not like the neuron is holding its breath, but the neuron is collecting signals. The signals haven't reached a threshold at which the neuron is ready to fire. Naji explains sub-threshold signaling with an example from parenting. You know, they may be unhappy about something, but they're not telling me. But they're not vocalized it. And then all of a sudden, like a little thing, which push them over. Like people would say, last straw, right, that breaks the elephant's back. So, so when, when that happens, they suddenly vocalize it. They complain, like, ah. Oh. But you, what you didn't, then you saw that, oh, it's because they didn't get the cookie that is making them upset. But it's really because that, uh, you know, they had a bad day at school. Their friends, uh, uh, they're fighting with their friends. All those sub-threshold events are really interesting and important to know. A parent will want to know about sub-threshold events, all the events that led up to the explosion of unhappiness about something. In brain research, scientists want to capture these sub-threshold events, these undercurrents. There are voltage sensors they can use to do that. Voltage imaging captures different information than calcium imaging. But to do voltage imaging, one needs a system that can image super fast, image at 1,000 frames per second. Potential mass about one millisecond. So that change only happens quickly within one millisecond. That means that you have to image your sample 1,000 times per second. We need to do, do at least 1,000 frames per second. And, and remember, I was telling you with two photons, you are scanning, you have to scan your focus in two dimensions to take one image, to, to, to make one frame, right? You know, with camera, you click to take a picture, you, 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 you capture everything in parallel. 
But with super time, you have to scan your focus serially in time in order to cover a frame. So before, with the middle scope or with the, the best commercial microscope you can buy, typically you will have a frame rate of 30 hertz, depending on how big your frame is. But, but generally, 30, 30 hertz is what you can get, 30 frames per second. But now we need to, to, to scan it much faster, to scan it at the 1,000, and, and also we, we demonstrated that we could we put the image at 3,000 frames per second, but use this uh, point scanning method. The team built a system able to image at those kinds of speeds. It is based on a system called FACID, which stands for Free Space Angular Chirp Enhanced Delay, developed by Kevin Cha, an electrical engineer from the University of Hong Kong. He and his team built the system to watch cells as they flow in a microfluidic device, a kind of device that is built out of a polymer with narrow channels in which you can sort cells, expose them to drugs, and see what happens. It's used, for example, when working on diagnostic tests, where you want to have high throughput of cells passing through quickly. His FACID system is fast. He could get 80 million frames per second. Naji met Kevin Cha at a conference, and his system gave her an idea for a system that could be combined with two-photon microscopy. You know, I look at this, I said, well, we're going to have to use it for two-photon, but it's not straightforward. It's not like we can transport his microscope and make it work. So we need to, for example, think about this the nanosecond delay issue, which mm. wasn't a problem for what he was doing, but it's a problem because he, he wasn't looking at fluorescence. Um, but uh, it is a problem for us. They adapted FACID for fluorescence microscopy so that it could image at 3,000 frames per second and capture voltage signals happening in the mouse's brain down to 345 microns deep. The module they use is a little like the Infinity Room by the Japanese artist Yayoi Kusama. When you walk into this room she created, light is bounced all around and it's a continuous series of nested reflections. If you've ever seen an infinity room, it's a little dizzying, at least to me, but it's cool. In this mirror, parallel mirror, you know that the, the images that are further away from you, they actually take more, those, those images are formed later than the images that are, that are closer to you in that picture. The researchers made a system that excites the sensors with a laser but each spot is hit by light with a two nanosecond delay. That's because it takes a moment for the sensor to react and then release the signal that is then captured by the microscope. Next, another point lights up. This approach lets the team tell the signals apart. So then they had a system able to capture electrical signals in neurons in such a way that they could explore sub-threshold events. And we use that difference to tell apart the fluorescent signal that are generated. The, the problem is that when you shine light onto the sample, it actually takes a few nanoseconds before the fluorescence will come out. We also need to have the, 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 the voltage sensor that would work with two-photon excitation. So there's actually quite a bit of voltage sensor on the market now, but many of them will not give you voltage signal reporting. It will not report voltage change when you use two-photon excitation. When you single photon, it's okay, but with two photons, it's not. Uh, this uh, probe called SF3, that one actually changed. So, so it was a great collaboration with him because uh, he, hasn't pub- he hasn't published it when we started the project, but the paper was just come out of describing the sensor in cell, I think, uh, uh, late last year. 
And uh, so we, we got this unpublished construct, and then we then extracted it in the mouse frame, and then, and then we used the facet. So, so then what we got, so remember the two problems I was telling you, one is that uh, with calcium is too slow. Uh, now we can see individual action potential, so the speed is not a problem. But then the real exciting thing, the sub-threshold, the thing that you wouldn't be able to even know is clumps. Now if you look at the traces, you see things are going up, but it doesn't have a little spike on top of it. Those are the sub-threshold responses, which you know traditionally can, can only be, be married with electrophysiology, with electric recording methods. But now we could actually see all of that. And that would really allow people to ask uh, you know, more questions that they wasn't able to ask before using imaging methods. Asking questions one could not ask before is something many labs need. Imaging methods helps neuroscience, and it helps other disciplines too. So one nice thing is that those imaging methods can be applied to many other, to imaging many other different samples, from uh, living samples to even to even materials. You know, like going back to my roots, the the, the materials with the fancy physical property. When you want to image them, the same challenges can apply. So so many of those things are just very. So now at Berkeley, you know, as you can probably tell. That, uh, that I really love Berkeley is that uh, I have the ability to do all of that. So it's such a great breadth of sciences that are, are happening, which can also, you know, pull me into different directions um, that, uh, that, uh, that I wouldn't you know, otherwise have gone into. Naji works on the brain, applies physics and chemistry. Tying all of this together, for her, she says, it's all about curiosity. Yeah, and I benefit by finding new questions. So again, giving my personality that it's really curiosity is what my, I would say if I define myself, it's, I'm very curious. So this is really a great place to be. I'm just very curious about things, like anything. What I do for fun is read. I, I read widely about everything, pop culture, politics, history. So, so I think... This is the, my, my kind of broad interest makes this kind of multidisciplinary field uh, feels very natural. You know, it's not something that I have to strive for. It's just something that I really enjoy doing. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Na Ji, a researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. This music is Equinox by the band Split Phase. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening.